what he did do was to enable the king to split and scatter the old grouping of Whigs who'd run Britain for the past 40 years. Bute had joined the royal circle during a downpour at Egham Racecourse. The rain had driven the then heir to the throne, Frederick, Prince of Wales, into a sporting marquee. The prince's party needed a fourth at cards. Bute was their man. From that moment, he was an intimate member of Frederick's set. And when the prince died, Bute befriended his widow, Princess Augusta. It was thought they became very close friends indeed. And it's at this point that he became indispensable to the ever-intellectually immature Prince George, the future king. Bute was seen almost as a father figure. No wonder the new King George relied so much on him. But Bute was no opportunist, no great plotter, no political manipulator. If he had been, he might have survived. The Seven Years' War trundled on. Britain's successes against the French in India and in North America and her support for Frederick the Great of Prussia had brought victories and commercial dividends. Now there was, to pit a Newcastle, a case for declaring war against Spain. The cabinet said no. Pitt had to go. He did. Unsupported by the fame of Pitt, the Duke of Newcastle was an easy victim and the administration slid easily into the hands of Lord Bute. The Government of England was committed to a man with no political experience and whose only connection with Parliament was that he had sat as a representative peer of Scotland for a short time twenty years before. Within three months of Pitt's resignation, the Government were compelled to declare war on Spain. This led to further successes in the West Indies and elsewhere. The British fleet seized the port of Havana, which commanded the trade routes of the Spanish main and the movements of the treasure fleets. In the Pacific Ocean, an expedition from Madras descended upon the Philippines and captured Manila. At sea and on land, England was mistress of the outer world. The time was right, or so the administration thought, to sign a peace treaty with France. Pitt's reading of history suggested to him that there was a danger, a very real one, of concluding not a peace treaty, but a truce. In other words, he felt that unless France was hobbled and not allowed to regain its possessions, regroup its resources and then its forces, a new war between the two nations would come soon. But Pitt was no longer in command. Bute sent the Duke of Bedford to Paris to negotiate its terms. He believed in the appeasement of France and Spain and the generous return of conquests. Pitt vehemently denounced the treaty as undermining the safety of the realm. Britain's acquisitions under the terms of the Peace of Paris in 1763 were nevertheless considerable. In America, she secured Canada, Nova Scotia, Cape Breton and the adjoining islands, and the right to navigate the Mississippi, important to Red Indian trade. In the West Indies, Grenada, St. Vincent, Dominica and Tobago were acquired. From Spain, she received Florida. In Africa, she kept Senegal. In India, the East India Company preserved its extensive conquests, and although their trading posts were returned, the political ambitions of the French in the subcontinent were finally extinguished. In Europe, Minorca was restored to England, and the fortifications of Dunkirk were at long last demolished. This treaty was the perfect exposition of the principles of the Duke of Bedford. The naval power of France had been left untouched. In America, 
she received back the islands of Saint-Pierre de Miquelon in the Gulf of the St. Lawrence, with the right to fish upon the shores of Newfoundland. And this was so short-sighted. As early as 1745, the governor of Massachusetts, William Shirley, had written to the Duke of Newcastle explaining in great detail the potential of Canada to Britain. He said every effort should be made in breaking up all the French fishing settlements in the Gulf and River of St. Lawrence, and even on the bank of Newfoundland, which the Duke of Bedford now gave away. In 1745, that fishing industry had been worth a million pounds a year. And there's another aspect of the 18th century deep-sea fishing industry that was totally ignored. I also mention, said William Shirley, the nursery of seamen which that fishery would maintain for the Royal Navy. Shirley was right. The brutal conditions on the Newfoundland banks was the nursery ground the Royal Navy needed. It was the one place Britain could deny to the French Navy. Instead, Bedford gave it away. In the West Indies, the richest prize of the war, the sugar island of Guadeloupe, was handed back, together with Martinique, Belle-Isle and St Lucia. These islands were also excellent naval bases for future use against England. Spain regained the West Indian port of Havana, which controlled the maritime strategy of the Caribbean. She also received back Manila, an important centre for the China trade. If the English had retained them, the fleets of France and Spain would have been permanently at their mercy. Moreover, the treaty took no account of the interests of Frederick the Great. This ally was left to shift for himself. He never forgave Britain for what he regarded as a betrayal, which rankled long afterwards in the minds of the Prussian leaders. These terms fell so far short of what the country expected that in spite of the general desire for peace, it seemed doubtful if Parliament would ratify them. By some means or other, a majority had to be ensured. Lords and commoners known to be hostile to the government were dismissed from any office they had been fortunate enough to acquire. It was approved by 319 votes to 65. Appeasement and conciliation won the day. Opposition to the way in which it was achieved and the terms of the Treaty of Paris, together with new and unpopular taxes in the spring of 1763, brought about mob protests on the streets of England and newspaper articles condemning government in general and Butte in particular. Butte didn't have the stomach of an 18th-century political pugilist. Effigies of him were burned. Within weeks, he was heading for a complete nervous breakdown. He lost dignity, he lost what little nerve he had, and he resigned. This left the new king, George III, with a personal as well as a political dilemma. George III was, or thought he was, an Englishman born and bred. At any rate, he tried to be. He had received a careful education in England from his mother and from the Earl of Bute, who was a Scotsman and, in his opponent's eyes, a Tory. George's earliest recorded literary achievement is a boyhood essay on Alfred the Great. George be king, his mother had said, according to tradition, and George did his best to obey. That he failed in the central problem of his reign may, in the long run of events, have been fortunate for the ultimate liberty of England. Out of the disasters that ensued rose the parliamentary system of government as we now know it. But the disasters were nevertheless both formidable and far-reaching. By the time that George died, 
America had separated herself from the United Kingdom, the first British Empire had collapsed, and the king himself had gone mad. But at first all promised well. Within two years of his accession, the king's friends, as they were known, predominated in the House of Commons. But when the Earl of Bute was forced out of office, what was George III to do? He turned to George Grenville to be First Lord of the Treasury, his chief minister. Eighteenth-century politics were not yet used to the title Prime Minister, which, after all, had evolved as a pejorative term used against Walpole for assuming so much power. And if the King imagined he was continuing to break up the tight circle from which administrations appeared to be self-selecting, Grenville wasn't a good choice. He was the son of the Whig MP Richard Grenville, whose wife was the daughter of another Whig MP, Sir Richard Temple. His youngest sister was married to William Pitt, and to complete the circle, Grenville married the daughter of an MP, albeit a Tory. By the time of Pitt's resignation, Grenville had seen that his future lay with the new king and Bute, although he was to quarrel with Bute over the conditions of the Paris Peace Treaty. He, like many in power and in the streets, believed Britain was giving too much away. Bute demoted him. But when Bute went, the king had no idea who he wanted as his chief minister, and so he appointed Grenville. It was such a half-hearted appointment that the king still regarded Bute as his prime minister. Grenville was first lord of the treasury, with Halifax and Egremont as the two senior secretaries of state. When, after Egremont's death, the king tried to persuade Pitt to become prime minister, Pitt said no. Two years later, George tried once more. The result was the same. Pitt said no, and Grenville felt himself more secure in office. So much so that he...